Hello, and welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast, where we talk about tennis by connecting the present of the sport with its storied past. Be it the nuanced unpacking of the individual stories, long-form interviews, or the detailed tour-level analysis, we have you covered. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tennis with an Accent. And actually, it's not another episode because today we're going to be taking a deeper dive into something that we haven't done this comprehensively. And uh, it's a real delight and honor to host arguably one of the most important voices uh, in the tennis internet era. It's uh, Jeff Sackman. You know, the name has become household. Uh, He's given us, you know, many new ways of looking at the same sport with nuanced statistics. The conversation is much better. Thanks to you, Jeff. Welcome to the show. Let's get this thing going. Thanks. I mean, I, I don't want to argue the other side of the debate, but I don't know if I'm quite a household name yet. Household name for people who listen to podcasts, who live on Twitter, who debate GOAT rankings, you know. So you definitely have given, and many others who probably are doing, you know, similar things, but, you know, you are the face of uh, ELO rankings and, you know, all the metrics uh, that that have been part of the discourse. And Nick Lester was on the podcast, I think, four years ago. And then since then, he's been on the pod a few times. So once I asked him in a DM, I said, look, I'm looking for statistics. Where should I go? I want to zero down on this player. And he said, tennis abstract, don't even go anywhere. That's the place I go when I prepare for my matches. So, you know, you are household. I mean, well, Nick humility. is a gentleman and a scholar. <laughs> so... Again, you know, we, 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 you know, we've all followed your work, but a traditional question, like many other podcasts, I ask my guests, what is the equation with tennis? You know, when did you become a fan? What's the roadmap been for you? Well, I played a lot as a kid. Um, I really, I don't remember why exactly I got so much into tennis. I played with my parents. I took lessons. I played junior tournaments with a pretty small amount of success because I, I, I grew into my adult size pretty late. So I was playing, you know, 14 year old tournaments when I was playing guys who were basically adult size and I was like Michael Chang sized. Um, and, and I stepped away from it for a while. I got into other things. I went off to college didn't really play tennis then really got into baseball statistics. And, and ultimately I don't know exactly what drew me back to the game, but now we're looking at probably the mid two thousands. Um, I, I got back into tennis and, um, I had, I delved into baseball statistics a lot. This is like the money ball era. now we're talking about, I had started a business um, with a partner doing baseball statistics for major league baseball teams. So I was very involved in sabermetrics and all that stuff. And sort of as a hobby, I just started wondering you know, what was out there for tennis. So I figured I could put one hobby together with another and started looking for tennis data, looking for tennis analytics. It was along the same lines of what existed for baseball. And there really wasn't anything. There's some academic papers that have, you know, there's been a body of academic work going back 40 years, but I didn't find that initially. And I didn't find anything uh, really at the level of like the, the blogosphere that was really thriving in baseball at that time. So I wanted to do some of my own miniature studies and just you know, dive into the data myself. And that meant building a data set that meant starting from scratch. So that's what I did. And I mean, that's basically the whole origin story of of tennis abstract is that there's all these great baseball stat sites that have been out there for 20 years now, going back to, you know, the print baseball encyclopedias going back 50 years. And if you're, if you're a baseball fan and you're into stats, that's just 
that's you take that for granted. I mean, when I was a kid, I had one of these giant 5,000 page encyclopedias. Then baseball reference was bookmarked on my, on every laptop I ever had. And when I turned to tennis, I wanted to have something like that. And we don't yet have something like that because my site is not nearly as good as baseball reference and fan graphs and all that kind of stuff, but that's what I wanted. So I mean, really tennis abstract is just the site that I wanted to have. And that's what I, what I built it as is creating the tool that, uh, that I want to be able to play around with to follow players and identify, I mean, stats of interest and just be able to dive deeper into the game. No, I think there's uh, definitely a lot to ponder there because that was, you know, the first half of my conversation is going to be on tennis abstract and you kind of open the door wide, you know, wide open there. So, so again, it's clearly a labor of love I and mean, you definitely have a background in, you know, I think software code writing or uh, pardon my assumption here. So this kind of repository is huge. And I don't even know if I have even explored 20% of it. I do go there, like I mentioned while we were talking uh, just prior to hit the recording button. I go there and look at the stats and it's just taking a deeper dive. So, you know, Moneyball and baseball comparisons you already mentioned. So how, how long it took you to, you know, I'm sure it's not like something that was done, you know, <clears throat> in say one year. So what was the starting point of this data set? Where did you even start? And then we'll get into ELOs and what flows next. Well, I'm a, I'm a big believer in the, the startup concept of a minimum viable product, which is if, if you're building something, no matter how big your ambitions are, just bite off a chunk that you can actually finish, do that, and then you know, go from there and evaluate your next step. So when I first started, all I did was went to the ATP site and gathered all the results, all the match stats I could find from just tour level men's matches. And I, I know I went back to 1991. That's the the first year that they have match stats like aces and break points and stuff. I don't know if I even went further back than that at first. So when tennis abstract first launched, which I think is 2011 or maybe 2012, it was just that it was men only and it was tour level only. And I think I was able to add challengers pretty soon after that. But, um, but that was, that was the first chunk. Um, and then I was you know, able to answer some basic questions like how many lefties are there? How important is it to be tall? Like can players prevent aces, stuff like that. Um, but it's pretty basic. And then, you know, just over time, we're, at this point, we're probably talking five years to, to having anything close to what you see on the site. Now I st- started to collect the um, results from ITFs. Uh, I, collected this a similar data set from uh, the WTA and the WTA site doesn't have nearly as many stats. So I had to get some match stats from other sources, which took more time. And in the last couple of years, I've made a really major effort to build the WTA historical database backwards. I mean, for instance, the WTA website is pretty limited before about 1980, the early 1980s. So I filled in the open era for so all the 1970s tour level matches. I've gone back all the way to World War One on the women's side, and that's that's really the the, the labor of love part. Um, but at this point, we're talking ten years. I'm always working on something, some new aspect or some some additional part of the site. So I guess that's that's the simple answer. Is it's it's been up for a little more than ten years. So that's how long it's taken to get to this point. There have been a couple of years where I haven't done much to move it forward but it's been a a gradual process pretty much this whole time 
Sure. I mean, you're making sound like more routine than it is. It's probably a lot deep diving. So I'm sure a curious listener who's already listening to the show must be thinking. So you want to elaborate, like, you know, the data that wasn't there, like, say, the WTA part you just mentioned? What were your sources and what was the effort to get? I mean, how, how did it even play out? I'm just curious for myself. How do you get data that's, say, not listed on ATP site? Where do you even start to, you know, put some of those numbers together? I think for the for the WTA, um, what I was specifically referring to is really just match stats from the last 10 years or so. It might be 15 years now. It might have been 10 years up to the point that I did this. But I think one of the uh, one of the live score sites, it, it wasn't Flash Score or Sofa Score, um, but one a site like that that was more popular five to seven years ago. Um, they had a lot of them. I'm not exactly sure from where. Um, maybe a previous in, 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 version of the WTA site had it. I'm not sure, but for, for, for whatever reason, they had it, they had matched stats like aces and breakpoints for a lot of WTA matches. Uh, not all. I mean, if you look at, if you look at some player, like say Elena Dementieva from 2010, uh, there's stats for a lot of her matches on my site, but not all. And that's, that's why, because my source is just missing some. And it, one of the things that's, annoying about all all this kind of data work is that it it does devolve into just a lot of kind of uh, annoying manual labor when if you have one one data set of match results which is what you can find on the wt website and you have another data set of match stats like what i'm talking about getting from a live score site or a betting site or something um, you've got to match those up so you have to you have to figure out okay that this is this is their, you know, tournament code for Wimbledon. This is their tournament code for Miami. This is their player code for Dementieva. This is their code for, uh, for Kim Kleisters. And, you know, repeat that process for 50 tournaments a year and, I don't know, 1,000 players per year. Uh, there are ways to automate it, but it always comes back to just a bunch of annoying manual labor. So that's a big part of my contribution is just doing that annoying manual stuff. So it can be a smoother process of just browsing through the results in one place instead of seven. Sure. So that kind of sets up, in my mind, the case to take a deeper dive into the the phenomena known as ELO rankings. You know, you have this across, I believe, most sports now. I think it started in chess. So if you want to just, you know, uh, dumb it down for me, I'm not, uh, you know, taking my listeners need a dumb, you know, dummy course, but I think there might be someone who may be a bit numerically challenged like me, who likes his sport simple, but also like the stats. So uh, ELO ranking something that comes in a lot of conversation. If you want to just do an intro from your part, and of course, your site is a big plugin. Anybody who looks into tennis stats should go check out as you have a great blog. You support all the formulas and the numbers. But uh, if you want to just give someone a quick crash course and why, second part of the question, ELO rankings are a better indicator than a WTA or ATP rankings in your mind. Yeah. Uh, the, so ELO rankings go back to a Hungarian mathematician uh, who was involved in chess and wanted a better chess rating system. Uh, so ELO was first devised for chess. Um, more recently, maybe 10 years ago or so, when 538, the website launched, they started doing ELO ratings for just about every sport. And they may have done, uh, I think they did a first stab at ELO ratings before I did. And actually, now that I say that, I'm certain they they did a stab at ELO ratings before I did. Um, and they've, they're a huge reason why ELO is as widespread and as popular as it is now, since they're maintaining basketball and baseball and, and all these different ELO ratings. 
Um, the basic idea is that what matters is who you play, your results against who you play, instead of the traditional tennis approach, which is when you play uh, or where you play. So, of course, in the ATP and WTA rankings, the number of points you get is based on the tournament and the round. So if you win a Grand Slam final, you get 2,000 points. It doesn't matter whether you beat Pete Novak Djokovic in that Grand Slam final or you beat Agnes Theradlanska in that Grand Slam final. 2,000 points, doesn't matter who you play. If you think about that, and it doesn't make sense. I mean, we're, we're constantly making adjustments in conversation in our minds based on opponents. Um, we're always saying things like, oh, that was a weak draw. Oh, he, he had a really, a, a really tough opponent, which is why he crashed out early. And he faced, he was unlucky in his draw. We, we say that kind of stuff all the time. ELO is a really big step towards incorporating all that information. So, I mean, just to, to dive a little bit into how the, the formula works, you start with, you give every player a, a base rating, which in traditionally in ELO is 1500. You just give everybody 1500 points. So if, if you and I both got wild cards into the Paris masters next week, then in the ELO system, we both go in with 1500 points, uh, which would mean we wouldn't have a very good chance of winning against anybody, which you already know. But the 1500 really just reflects that ELO doesn't know how good we are. So what happens then is based on the results of that match between you and I, um, the winner gains points and the loser loses points. And the number of points we gain and the number of points we lose depends on two factors. One of them is the quality of the player we play. And the other one is how much information the ELO rating already has. So for you or I, this is our first match in the ELO system. We've never played an ATP match before. So the adjustment is going to be pretty huge. I'm not exactly sure how big it is, but it might be that if you beat me, you go up to 1600 points. I go down to 1400 points. Uh, If, you know, Yannick Sinner plays Daniel Medvedev, then their ratings are a lot better established. So they're not going to jump a hundred points in the course of one match. They often won't jump more than a handful of points because if you're Yannick Sinner and right now his ELO rating is 2056, then what that 2056 means is the rating knows he's very, very good. He's number three in on my rating right now. And if Yannick Sinner goes into a match, he plays a first rounder against a qualifier or something, that really doesn't give you very much information. I mean, going into that match, we knew Yannick Sinner would probably win. So if he does, we don't really learn much from that. And that's what ELO reflects is it, it, it updates your score up or down based on winning or losing based on how much additional information you get from that specific result. So an easy win might be, you know, two or three points, a really big upset against the top guy in the list that might be worth 20 points. Um, and those numbers will be different based on how much information it already has. So if you're Carlos Alcaraz breaking out of nowhere a year, two years ago, a big win is worth a huge amount because we go from knowing very little about Carlos Alcaraz to knowing holy crap, this guy can be the top 10 player. So the idea is, is you're always updating the rating based on what additional information you've gained. And that way you, you incorporate a lot of the information that the ATP and WTA ranking systems can't really handle because they just stick one number on every round of every tournament. Sure. So obviously there's a lot, a lot of further explanation and I'm not, 
it's not even an attempt to challenge, it's just to, uh, since I have you here, to better understand. I'm sure this is not like, you know, one-hour podcast, you probably spent hours convincing yourself and eliminating, you know, counter questions that you've had. But a basic question is coming from acknowledgement that it's, it's a great formula. You know, you should not get the same points, you know, beating Novak Djokovic in the fourth round if you're an unseated player or beating someone a lot lower because task of beating Djokovic is always a more formidable task. So on the flip side, say you said everybody gets 2,000 points winning the seventh round of a major. So if Novak is playing, uh, just throw in a name, uh, Pablo Carina Busta instead of Rafa Nadal. So you think in the final he should be getting less points because that's the counter argument from the ATP point of view. I don't know if it holds water from where you're coming, but uh, have you explored that? Because isn't that a bit of an unfair uh, way to, you know, reward like a final? Or at that point, final doesn't mean a thing. It's it's more a case of beating seven seven players with different elos. It depends what you're trying to accomplish. So you use the word should, and it, it really depends on what you mean by should. If you're trying to be fair to players in the sense that you always want a U.S. Open title to be worth the same. You want players to know what they're getting into when they sign up for a tournament. I totally understand the argument that you should count on getting 2,000 points for winning the title. I get it 100%. Uh, that's not what I'm trying to do. What I what Elo is trying to get at and it really resonates with me as an approach to rating players is I want to know how good the players are. Um, there's no should about it. And the sort of very closely related question is I want to know what their odds are of winning their next match. So if, if I have, you know, Carlos Alcaraz and Novak Djokovic at the top of my list, separated by all two tiny points right now, there's no should about that. It's not a matter of Alcaraz deserving those points or Djokovic not deserving those points. It's a matter of given the information we have, here is my best estimate of how good they are. And if to use your example, if if you beat Rafael Nadal in a Grand Slam final, I'm going to think you're a better player than if you beat Pablo Carina Busta in a Grand Slam final. I mean, you might or might not be, but based on that one piece of evidence, I think we can all agree that beating Nadal in that final tells you more. Evidence that the, the player is a good player, the player is more likely to win their next matches, and so on and so forth. So, I mean, it, it, to that extent, Elo's just doing something different than the official ranking systems are. So, I, I don't see any future path where Elo or something like it displaces the official rankings because I, I get the purpose of having this predictable system that everyone kind of agrees is, is how players should be rewarded. But that doesn't mean that the ranking system, the official ranking systems are a good way to predict what will happen in the future, because compared to ELO, they're just not. Okay, that's that's a better explanation, at least for me, <laughs> to more complete uh, understanding now. So one more follow up is, so is ELO more like an active ranking? Like, say, if uh, in my example, if Karina Busta is playing Djokovic, and for example, his starting point on ELO was 1800 but during the six matches he's beaten say Rafa Nadal and Roger Federer to get to Novak Djokovic so by the time he plays Djokovic is this ELO reflective of his last win or is a weekly calculation or is an ongoing active each match after each match you have a new ELO rating I only publish updated results on my site every week but um, what's going on in the background is they are updated with every match okay 
All right. So another question I had, which you may have covered, but just for, you know, maybe a listener might have the same question. So let's look at the two breakout stories of the last, say, 37 years. Uh, Boris Becker and Emma Raducanu, you know, winning their respective majors. But Boris Becker was more like a known name. He had an ATB rank, I think, I believe in the top 25, had won the Queen's title and has been a factor. Had, I think, even reached Australian quarters. So he probably had a higher... ELO rating coming in, correct? Then say someone like Emma, who probably hadn't played many tour matches, if I don't even know if she had played any. So what's mm-hmm. a setting point for someone, say, who comes through qualies and was maybe on the ITF equivalent? Uh, how does her ELO standing differ, say, from a Becker who was probably starting somewhere in the 1600s, 1700s? Uh, let's see. What it, you can look at the year-end rankings on my website. So looking at Becker's page, looks like I had him ranked 84th among men at the end of 1984. So he was probably a fair, well, he definitely was a fair bit higher than that by the time Wimbledon rolled around in 85, because if nothing else, he won Queens, I remember. So he had he had racked up a bunch of points from that. So I'm not exactly sure where he was coming into Wimbledon, but um, maybe not that different from where he was in the ATP rankings at that point. Um, Emma, I mean, I think unless Emma had done something particularly remarkable on the ITF tour, which I don't think she had, uh, then I think Elo wouldn't have given you a lot more of a signal that she was poised to do something great than the WTA rankings would have. Uh, So I think with really young players, their ratings will will depend more on whether they have a few big wins. So, I mean, just to, to make up a hypothetical example, if some player comes along and doesn't break into the top 100, but maybe upsets Alcaraz in one tournament and then upsets Cam Nori in another, like their rating, ranking might only be 110 on the ATP computer, but because of those upsets, they're going to do better in ELO than someone who climbs to 110 by virtue of making the semifinals of a bunch of challengers all year long. Um, but other than that, I'm not sure that there's going to be a huge difference in what players look like when they're first uh, breaking onto tour level. Sure. So again, uh, so again, this is a question from total lack of knowledge on my end. Uh, I wanted you to, you know, lead me here. So could different websites say Ultimate Tennis Statistics is one? A friend of mine pointed me in that site's direction. And uh, could two sites have different ELO ratings? Uh, could the formula vary, or is this like a kind of a universal formula where in your ELO ratings, you both should have, say, Carlos Alcaraz as the number one, or could one side have Novak Djokovic as number one? There will be small differences. Um, There's sort of a canonical ELO formula, but there are a couple of variables and uh, that every, every person has to set when they're attacking a new problem. So for instance, the, the, the main one is called the, the K factor. I think <laughs> I'm all of a sudden doubting myself, but the, the K factor, it has, it, has some control over how much the ranking or the rating rather will change which each with each result. Um, and that varies from sport to sport. So you can't just take the tennis formula and apply it to, I don't know, backgammon or something. And beyond that, um, I've made a number of tweaks to my formula. And like I said, to one of your earlier questions, the goal is always to, to get your best possible estimate of how a player is performing right now based on the results we have. And sometimes uh, the traditional ELO formula doesn't quite get there. And 
just to give an example, one thing I've written about and, and tried to solve for the ELO formula is dealing with injuries and other absences. So if a player is off the tour for three months, then he doesn't have any new results. Like we, ELO doesn't update if unless there's a win or a loss. So tr the traditional ELO rate, rate reading is going to say that when he comes back from a three-month layoff, he's the same guy he was when he left. And instinctively, there's no way that's true, right? I mean, we we don't know what what exactly condition he's in when he comes back, but it's probably not the same. I mean, that injury had to have some effect. So I crunched some numbers and came up with a, an injury penalty, which is based on how long you're out um, and what your rate, rating was before you left. And then what happens is at, when you do come back, then your rating can bounce around more at at a higher rate than it did before. So for instance, Nadal is supposedly coming back in, in Paris next week. He's been out for, I think, 10 weeks or something, which is just over the minimum to trigger that penalty. So last week or something, Nadal's rating went down. I don't remember exactly how many points, but let's say 60 points or something. And that's based on my analysis of, if you look at every player who's ever missed 10 weeks in the middle of a season, that's about the the amount that their level changes based on coming back from an injury. I mean, that's not any judgment about Nadal specifically, but an average player, that's the effect that that, that kind of injury has on their game. But the, the variance is a lot bigger. I mean, some players, if they come back after 10 weeks from an, an injury, then they might be better than ever. I mean, maybe they, they practiced really hard. Maybe the their rehab was really effective. All of a sudden they're a better player, or at least as good as they were. Other players, they come back too early, their rehab didn't work, they're rusty, whatever. So not only are they probably a little bit worse, we also don't know as well as we normally would. So instead of that first result, meaning adding 10 points or dropping 10 points from their rate rating, the first result might mean drop adding or dropping 20 points or 25 points. So it, Nadal's results in Paris next week will have a bigger impact on his rating than they would have if he hadn't had a break. And I say all of that, not because you asked, because you didn't, but to say that's not canonical ELO, the Hungarian mathematician that gave birth to this formula was not thinking in these terms at all, probably because injuries don't have nearly as much of an effect on chess. Um, but if you are doing your own ELO formula, you're probably not doing this exactly the same way. Um, I think, I think the ultimate tennis statistics guy is doing something very similar because I think he pretty much mimicked what I did. Uh, but I'm sure he's doing his own different things. And, um, uh, I mean, I know that the numbers aren't exactly the same. They should be roughly the same contour. I mean, it, it, I know at the top of my list, Alcaraz and Djokovic are really, really, really close. I mean, they're two points away. And an ELO two points is, is nothing. I mean, it's basically a tie. So I wouldn't be surprised if, if they're 20 or 30 points up or down. And I don't even know in which direction. I mean, that's a plausible result for me. If he has Alcaraz at number 12, then I'd start to think, eh, maybe he did something wrong. That, that's, that's, more, that's more of a difference than there should be. Uh, but it's... It, it's it's not like the tennis ELO formula is handed down from God. It most certainly is not. No, and you're right. That's why I took those two names because that's a very slight difference between how those two are projected and, you know, your respective ELOs. And I think for listeners, a great case study here would be to come to Jeff's site, Tennis Abstract, and look at Dominic Team because right now ATP says, I believe he's somewhere uh, 
around the 113, 115 mark. And then Jeff has his ELO at 42. So that's kind of a very uh, fascinating real life example. And another example would be Zverev when he comes back after a six month layoff. So what kind of penalty will he have? Will he be losing what 10 points for every three months? Is that the variance or? Um, it's been so long since I worked out the math. I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think if you, if you miss nine weeks or more, not counting the off season, there's a, an initial 100 point penalty. And then it, it gets a little bit greater for each additional week or two that you miss. So he's already been hit by the majority of the penalty he's been hit. Cause I, I think he was up around the 2100 levels. He was very close to Alcaraz and Djokovic before the injury. Um, with the injury, he's down to 2000. So right now he's just inside my top 10. He could lose a little bit more before he comes back, but I don't count the, the off season. So obviously everyone's going to take, take the off season off. Um, so if he comes back in Australia, I think he'll be right around that level. And that, to me, that's one of the biggest examples of, of where ELO is more helpful than the official ratings because the official rankings are going to tell you more about how much someone has played in the case of an injured player. And those are the cases where the, the ATP or WTA rankings are sometimes obviously wrong. I mean, if, if, if somebody doesn't play for a year, they come back with no ranking whatsoever. And I mean, it, it is kind of a cheap shot at the official rankings, but that's obviously wrong. I mean, if, if Roger Federer came back and played a match tomorrow, we know he's better than your typical number 2,500 player in the world, like guy who just lost in the first round of the futures. That's not the right rating for him. Um, I'm not sure exactly what it is, but it should be a lot higher. So what ELO can do is, is capture what their level was before they left, capture the effect of their layoff, however long it was, and at least have a starting point. And that's basically what happened with team. I mean, that's how we end up with something in the 40s instead of something in the 100s. Um, because I was able to use that information from you know three, four years ago, update it with the limited information we've got about him this year, factor in the length of the layoff and come up with something that's hopefully a little closer to what his true level is. Sure. And Elo would also relieve fans of the wildcard debate because you have to fall a lot lower, like say in Dominic Team's case, if he's 42 right now, per your site's latest release, he shouldn't be looking for any wildcards, right? But uh, that's how I think the ATP rankings are structured. So. Yeah. Let's uh, take this conversation forward. Uh, Andrew Burton, by the way, who is uh, one of our key members of Tennis with an Accent, is a huge admirer of yours, and he sends his uh, sincere admiration to your work. And uh, some of the questions would be, uh, you know, both from me and Andrew, we had some common questions. Before we take a step forward to exploring the, the 128 project, I want to have a broader conversation with you, more like a question. Uh, I follow cricket. That's my second closest sport. And you said baseball, you know, drove the need for statistics. So there, we, are living, we are living in the age of data, where from players to like fans to everyone, we are being fed data to enhance our debate or conversation about a particular player. And it's really, you know, with numbers, there's really no place to hide. But, you know, since you're a big advocate of numbers and your site is used as a big benchmark, where do you sit on this uh, is this the, because there's a big debate in cricket, at least, that, uh, you know, numbers the only way to look at the game and all the cliched way of broadcasting or commenting or, you know, reading long form articles where there's talk about pressure and, you know, so who's more clutch. All this doesn't mean anything. It's battle of skill versus skill. So larger question is, uh, how seriously are you on the side of numbers and 
are you okay, are you okay if someone views uh, the sport a little differently using some stats and 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 some you know some narrative based you know knowledge that's always floating around? Well, I don't care how other people watch the game. I hope I mean it's there to be enjoyed. So, however it is that you enjoy it is is great with me. Um, what on, the only thing that bothers me is is that sometimes that leads to just being flat out wrong. I mean, it depends what sort of claims you're going to make by approaching the sport a different way. If you want to talk about things like clutch, then that's something that can be quantified. I mean, so you know what to give a more direct answer to your question. I'm on the side of numbers as far as they can possibly go. And one of the, one of the things you can quantify is the level of uncertainty about any particular question. So I mean, clutch is one of those questions that has come up for as long as people have been doing quantitative analysis of sports and probably will forever. And I, I actually know a lot more details about this in baseball than in tennis been so much more work done, but in baseball and tennis, there's just not a lot of evidence for it. I mean, in, in, in baseball, I think there, there's some signs that there's a relatively small number of players who uh, increase the level of their game by a small percentage, let's say five or 10% in, in the biggest moments. So there's evidence that there's something going on, but it's very small. It's not like you can have a utility player turn into a world beater just because he's up at the plate with the bases loaded in the bottom of the ninth. And in tennis, I assumed it would be different. When I started digging into this stuff, I thought I would find these big effects where, you know, maybe Novak Djokovic would be way better at, you know, 4-4, 30-all um, compared to how he was earlier in a set compared to journeyman players. I thought that would be a big difference. And I have dug and I have dug and I have dug for data like that. I've created a new data set specifically so I could dig further for results like that. And for the most part, I just haven't found it. The best players are the best players because they perform at a higher level all the time. There are, just like in baseball, there are some exceptions to that. You can point to, you know, Rafael Nadal serving, trying to save break points. I mean, I think that's an instance where he definitely raises his level. There are a few other players who you can find who at certain types of clutch moments, they raise their game, but there's not a lot of evidence that it happens. That that's what makes a great player. Great. Um, what tends to mislead us, I think is we see specific instances where a player does something miraculous at a key moment. And we extrapolate from that, that that's the sort of thing that player does, but just because, you know, a player hits a great backhand down the line at break point once doesn't mean he always does it all. Anytime you're dealing with with any type of quantitative analysis, it, you have to be able to make a prediction that is borne out to some degree. And that would mean, you know, you see somebody make a great backhand down the line in a clutch moment, you conclude, therefore, he's a great clutch player. That's essentially a prediction that at the next big clutch moment, he's more likely than average to be able to hit a shot like that. And that's the sort of thing that just isn't borne out by the numbers as, as far as I found them. So if, if I were a betting man, which I am not, but if I were, I would try to find people who are relying more heavily on narratives and bet against them whenever I can, because the more you do rely on narratives that contradict the sort of basic quantitative findings, the more often you're going to predict wrong. And maybe you don't care. <laughs> That's fine. If you don't care about uh, accurately predicting the future in the matches you're watching or uh, of the players you're interested in, then 
great. I mean, do whatever you want. Cheer in front of the TV, enjoy your popcorn. I, we can all live happily ever after. Um, but that's not really what I'm interested in. So I often find myself rejecting the narrative because narratives tend to emphasize anecdotes and extrapolate broader trends from them when the numbers just don't bear that out. Sure. No, I think that's a very comprehensive answer. And I lean, you know, to towards whatever you've said, a lot of it, at least from my understanding. But another popular uh, discourse on Twitter has been uh, not, you know, all points are same versus not all points are same. Say Lorenzo Sonego down 1540 at one all is much different than him being down 1540 at five all. So then it brings us back to the same big moment. So do you believe uh, one of the two are bigger moments, the way tennis scored is scoring system is structured, or you still think it's a Sonego serve against his respective opponent that day, 1540, no matter where, should be the same point? Well, there's a, I, think, I think that's two different questions. I mean, one of them is, are they different points? They absolutely are different points. And like, that's, that's something that some academics started working on in the 70s is quantifying how much bigger they are. So there's a variety of names for the stat, like leverage or volatility or importance. Uh, and I've, I have some stuff I've written about that and some code I've posted that where you can quantify the difference and say that you know, winning that 15, 40 point at one all in the first set might mean improving your chances of winning the match by 2%. Winning that same point, 15, 40 at five all might mean improving your chances of winning the match 8%. I mean, that's a, that's a huge difference. Um, so yeah, absolutely quantifiably, those are different points. Whether Sonigo plays them differently, um, I don't know. I'd have to look at the data. I mean, I'm I'm guessing the the narrative on Sonigo is that he plays them worse at five all, right? And you know, like McEnroe would come in again. You know, that's a name I always use because I guarantee he would not listen to me. You know, <laughs> taking a loose uh, you know comment at him, but I think uh, he would always say with his commentary that I grew up, you know, since I moved to the States in the 90s, 1540 at a quarterfinals, the biggest point of his career. You don't know. You haven't followed like how he got there, right? Uh, even for someone, uh, first round is as big a point depending on where her or his ranking was. And then uh, the counter argument would be, you know, is it is it the biggest point of that career? So, I mean, do you do you see the hyperbole that comes along with it? And I think that's where the discourse is poor, but I'm fine with a McIndoe, you know, preaching to his audience, because I've grown past that. I follow more tennis, and I think that's probably not the biggest point of his career. It's still a break point. It's huge. That's where I tend to disagree. Do you see it similarly? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, it, it, since you can, I haven't tried to quantify the importance of points across a whole career. I, I see your point that, you know, maybe, maybe he had a point at a challenger final that got him into the top 100, which got him into that U.S. Open draw and so on and so forth. So you could theoretically look at a player's whole career and work out like the impact that every individual point had on their career earnings or their time in the top 10 or whatever. Um, that's probably not something I'll ever undertake, but in theory, you could do it. Um, so, I mean, I, I'm sympathetic to the idea that there is some point that is the most important point of a player's career. I'm not sure I trust that John McEnroe has a good instinctive sense of when it is. Um, but I do think that you know, if, if someone's in their first Grand Slam quarterfinal and they're facing 15-40 and maybe they're down two sets to one, then I mean, that's up there where I think everyone gets it wrong 
not everyone, a lot of people get it wrong, especially people who do tennis commentary, including McEnroe, but not including Nick Lester, is assuming that players play them differently. I mean, that, that's where we get back to clutch is you know, as soon as you claim that something is the best point, the, the most important point of a player's career, the corollary is often thus he will crumble under the pressure or thus we will learn a lot about his character based on how he performs at this point. And because tennis is fairly straightforward as sports go, if he, de- if he double faults, then maybe we learn something about his character. <laughs> That's pretty clear cut. But if, you know, he's facing Novak Djokovic and they play an eight stroke rally and it ends with a forced error into the net on the eighth shot and Sonigo loses the point, is that because he crumbled under pressure or is that because he's just not as good as Djokovic? He wasn't as good as Djokovic before. They've played 10 points just like, like that in the match. So the the, the assumption that, mo- that so many people make that is wrong is that that point will be played very differently because of because it's so important that's that's what the data doesn't bear out no that's uh, that, that that's definitely a very uh thought-provoking answer and you know people who have a counter argument should explore you know uh reading reading the blog more and understand where you know jeff's coming as far as statistics do so jeff your next big project is the 120 it's a great project so talk about what got you going there, and then there'll be a few follow-up questions from my end. But uh, yeah, and, and 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 the second part of the question is how have you received any feedback, positive, negative? Are people challenging the formula? You know, talk about it. Do you really think anyone would argue with me about a rating <laughs> of the greatest players of all time? Um, <laughs> so I'm uh, yes, I'm I'm rating the top or ranking it. I always get confused between rating and ranking when I'm talking off the cuff. Um, I'm ranking the top 128 players, men and women combined of the last hundred years. And um, you asked what got me going down this road. And I, I mentioned earlier, my sort of extreme labor of love of building out a historical women's tennis database. So I spent a huge amount of uh, late 2020 and early and all of 2021 um converting typed out results and going through old newspapers and everything to create a fairly comprehensive database of women's tennis results going back to 1915. I think I'm back to, uh, so we have a few thousand results from every season going back to 1915. And as I was going along, I updated my ELO um, historical ELO ratings. So in addition to having, you know, Steffi Graf's ELO rating, we also have Suzanne Longland's ELO rating and Alice Marble's ELO rating, and every other player besides and that meant I started to get these historical rankings and I started getting more interested in, in the historical byways of the, the whole last hundred plus years of the sport. And simultaneously, what was happening is a, a, a great sports writer, probably my favorite sports writer out there um, named Joe Posnanski. He wrote something called the Baseball 100, which is same concept, only obviously baseball. And because it's Joe Posnanski, it's written like a hundred times better than I could ever do. And I was absolutely riveted to, to his stories. And he emphasized from the beginning, it's not really about the ranking. I mean, the ranking is super fun. It's super fun to argue about. It's a good starting point, but it's really about the stories. I mean, it, it, no matter how big of a baseball fan you are, um, you'd read any one of Joe's 100 essays and think, wow, I didn't know this about Hank Greenberg or Sandy Koufax or Don Drysdale or even Mike Trout playing today. Uh, and it was 
I mean, one of the highlights of my year, I think, was following that project along the way. So for some ridiculous reason, I thought, hey, I could do that too. So I merged the two things. I, um, I, I created as best I could a men's historical database to parallel the women's database and created an algorithm that through many, 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 many iterations got pretty close to what seemed to be my instinct of, of what a historical ranking should look like. And that was, it was ELO based. So the way the ranking works is it's, it's, it's based on three components, all of which are, are based on ELO ratings. One of which is a player's single best moment in time as rated by ELO. Um, one of them is the, their, th- their three best year end ELO ratings. So a sense of their sort of prolonged peak best three years and then uh, a total career rating. So it gives some reward to players who played for a long time as well at a, at a high level. Uh, and then you blend those three together, do a whole bunch of uh, whole bunch of math to, to blend men and women, to do a few corrections for era when there's some, some data issues with the different eras. And ta-da, we have a list of the top 128 players. And like what Joe Posansky did, I just use that as a starting point. So since February, I've been publishing um, long form essays, counting down from the 128th player, Beverly Baker Flights, down to number 28, which was Billie Jean King, which I published um, yesterday. And hopefully by the end of the year, we will get to number one and you'll find out who that is. So that's the that's the project too, so far. You also asked about feedback I've gotten. I've gotten a lot. Some pot, maybe the majority has been positive. A lot of people have um, carping to do about specific r- rankings, which is part of the reason I'm not as active on Twitter as I was six months ago. Um, I'll just use this moment to to complain about my least favorite thing about Twitter with projects like this is if you write a 2000 word essay about a player and then you post that link on Twitter, the results you get or the the responses you get will not be from people who read the essay. They'll be from people who see the number next to the name and have a very strong negative opinion about it. (laughs) Uh, And I generally have a pretty thick skin about that stuff. Um, But it got a little tiring to, you know, put all that work into an essay and have someone say, what kind of idiot are you to think that Ash Barty is number 101? And I'm, I don't know what kind of idiot I am. I guess you need to elaborate more or maybe even read the whole essay. Uh, but it, for me, it's not about the, the rankings. I stand behind the rankings, but I'm way more interested in the stories and learning more about, about tennis history. And to the extent there's a, a midpoint between learning the history and appreciating and standing behind the rankings, it's getting a sense of, of how the eras compare, which is not the absolute strongest point of what ELO does. Um, It's not certainly what ELO was designed for, but I know a a number of people have already told me they think Billie Jean King is too low at number 28. Part of which I say, well, wait to see who the top 27 are when you talk about individual cases, but we can come back to that if you want. But um, part of it is is she did not play in the strongest era, especially in the 60s. She racked up a bunch of grand slams when Margaret Court was away. Um, every single player has pros and cons like that, that you lose when you just look at their grand slam total. So yeah, Billie Jean King got 12 grand slam, sing- slam singles totals. Amazing. She is one of the top 28 greatest players of all time. I agree. Um, but there are reasons why I hesitate to put her a little bit higher. So, you know, the more 
the more history you learn, the, the, the more, um, the more nuanced you can be about your understanding about, of all the top line numbers, like slam counts and title counts and weeks at number one and stuff like that. Sure. No, it's a great project. Another colleague, a friend of mine who contributes for Tennis and Excellence, Murta Tunga, he coaches on the tour on the WTA side. He loves this project. So another sincere appreciation from our side. Uh, and, and you're right. I mean, you know, like this kind of, you know, work that has not only a 2000 word essay, but, you know, you provide charts, you provide like anecdotes from that era, you provide statistics and the formula is, you know, something I'm sure you're just not winging it. You have a formula and you use all these tables to arrive on this kind of a project. So, yeah, I mean, Twitter is a great place, but it, it has, you know, it has a level of stupidity that we all should ignore from, you know, uh, when this kind of content is provided. So looking at the ranking, now I'm convinced why a certain Marat Safin, who is one of my favorite players all time, uh, didn't make the cut. So I, wa- I want to save this question for the podcast that why not Safin? Why Nishikori Safin was ranked number one? Maybe it's the ELO and I know his consistency wasn't good. He only finished top 10 on the ATP only four times. And you had him, I think, close to five times in, in a top 10 of ELOs. But then I got my answer when you put Boris Becker, my all-time favorite player, ahead of Andre Agassi and Stefan Edberg, because I thought those guys had better careers in terms of consistency. But Becker's ELOs, I went to his page, was slightly higher, you know, if that was the only criteria. So you want to talk about the two use cases? Did, was Safin a close miss, just so I can rest peacefully? He was not. <laughs> I've actually heard <laughs> a few people have asked me about Safin, and I don't even want to tell you some of the names that Safin's behind, um, partly because I... I, I couldn't defend all of them and I, uh, yeah, I, I don't want to make you angry. No, uh, but no he, he, hmm, I, there's one, there's one final step to my, my algorithm that I didn't do this far, this deep down the list. So this is approximate, but I have him around number two thirty overall. Um, and a big part of it is, well, actually, he's 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 pretty much at the same level in all three of the different metrics I mentioned: the the single peak moment, the top three years, and the the career. Um, his peak was not super high. Uh, a big part of it, my algorithm does not like that era very much. I mean, you probably also noticed Gustavo Quertin isn't there. Um, he's on Kefelnikov. the list. Of, yep, Kafelnikov. I I was actually most surprised by Kafelnikov, and he's the one who got closest. I think. Uh, yeah, he he would have been right around number one fifty, so he didn't miss by much. Um, but yeah, th- those guys just miss. It's it's not it's not a super strong era. I'm not a hundred percent confident that that's accurate. I uh, I don't know, but it also it it kind of checks out for me. I I don't know. Some of these judgments are. I mean, the formula attempts to take into account so much, like essentially every win and loss of a player's career. And you know, one of the fundamental things I, I believe about analytics is like, if you, when you come up with a formula that mostly checks out, I mean, if, if you look at my list and say, this is, this is 90% right, then that means that you should probably think a little harder about the last 10%, not because you're wrong, but just because uh, an algorithmically generated list that gets that close is is probably doing a better job than any human mind. Certainly my human mind could manage just because I, I can't think of every variable in Merit Safin or Yevgeny Kipalnikov's career and balance them all appropriately. All I can think of is, you know, 
they won a few slams, they reached this ranking, they had this good year, they had this bad loss, and just kind of do my best. I mean, a, a formula like the one I've attempted is, is, is considering a lot more variables than that. So it's going to miss sometimes, but I think it's, it's probably getting closer than, than certainly my gut is gut instinct would manage. And often it doesn't make a very satisfying answer to say that he's number 230 because I like my algorithm and my algorithm says he's number 230. I know that's not satisfying at all, but that's kind of what the, the answer often boils down to. And you're right, because, you know, like when we had Hewitt in the rankings, th- at that point, I knew there's no way Safin's going to be ranked higher than Hewitt. And obviously, as a big Safin fan, the stat that I always talk about is the last four years on tour didn't even fetch, I think, 100 wins. I think he won mere 96 matches. He wasn't the same guy. So I think, uh, yeah, I mean, Safin fans like myself, Safin is to blame. If his career ended 2005, he probably would make the list. But I think that's how it is. The last, you know, few last 150 odd matches are what is the undoing. And then uh, you want to uh, weigh on the Becker out- outweighing Agassi because that may be a big surprise to everyone if that's something you have it ready to dis- uh, to share and, you know, for the listeners. How does Becker... Yeah, I was, I was a little surprised by Agassi too. I mean, I, I, I'm of the era when I was, I was watching... Ag- well, I wasn't watching Agassi win many slams when I was a kid, but I was watching Agassi in a lot of TV advertisements. So his very influential anyway. So I, I always assumed he was, was better or would come out a little bit higher. Um, Becker's peak was a little higher in my judgment, which, well, the algorithm thinks his peak was a little higher and I totally buy that. Um, and the sort of mid range peak, like the best three years, Becker's best three years were way better than Agassi's best three years in, according to the algorithm. And again, I, I accept that some of it comes down to the, the same um, point about the era that I made about Safin, like the, the time when Agassi picked up so many of his, his slam wins was the time when Kapelnikov was winning and Safin was winning. And I remember when I started researching the, the Agassi essay, I was really struck by the list of players that he beat in grand slam finals. So I think one against Sampras, but let's see if I can, I can get this list because it, it, it really struck me how how weak it was yeah, he compared to what Clement, I right? in one final yeah he beat Clement he beat Rainer Schuttler um he Todd won Martin. one against Todd Martin and Kafelnikov Andre Medvedev at the French Open um Michael Seek and Goran Ivanisevic so I mean good players all and there's one against Sampras in there and I mean my ratings are in, are by no means all about slam finals. I mean, he had lots more wins against Sampras, including some in slam semifinals. I'm not taking those away from him. I mean, certainly rating somebody in the top 40 players of the last hundred years is, I mean, I think he's great. <laughs> it's just a matter of not quite as good. And that's where small differences in era or maybe getting some, getting some lucky draws or at least some lucky matchups at the end of draws, uh, will make a difference. And I think that's the, that's the main factor that nudges Agassi down to the low thirties instead of maybe, I mean, maybe people expected him to be mid twenties. I don't know what the national wisdom would have been, but um, it's not a huge difference, but it may be knocking down 10 spots on the list. So I guess uh, with your response to Safin and then also Agassi, this is a question that Andrew Burton had sent me. And I think you pretty much answered it. If you want to further elaborate, Andrew just wanted to know, does the formula taking account depth and stability? I guess it does in some ways then. 
Yeah, you mean of the era? Yeah, era opponents, yeah, if you say, you know, if you're judging Sampras, you know, to judge Sampras, I mean, in the formula, he has not been listed yet in the 128. I'm sure he's going to be a lot higher. But, uh, you know, does depth, depth, depth and stability of his opponents come as a criteria? Yeah, I mean, it, using the, the ELO formula, I'm using every single opponent is taken into account. And th- that's a big reason why Gabriella Sabatini came in at number 31, I think, which was way, way, way higher than a lot of people expected. Um, she had a lot of wins, not only against Steffi Graf, but against pretty close to peak Steffi Graf, uh, or maybe not peak, sub-peak, second-tier peak Steffi Graf. Uh, and Steffi, as you might imagine, is pretty close to the top of the list. Her peak is as high as pretty much any woman's peak in, in tennis history. So someone who can, who can beat Steffi close to her peak all those times, that's worth a ton of points. Um, I mean, she loses a lot of those points for some of her, her, her middling uh, losses to, to much weaker opponents. But I mean, the attempt is to take all of those into account, not just you know, scan the, the, the tour finals. It's a little tougher to pin down exactly how good a job ELO is at, at measuring the strength of an era. Um, again, like I'm saying about the, the era we've been talking about, it, it seems to check out with, with what my gut would say about the era, but I mean, I, I can't be entirely confident. This just seems like something that is sort of, it's beyond my mental capacity to really process to say, you know, this era is 12% better than this other era, which is four and a half percent worse than the other era. I can't do that in my head. I have no idea. Um, so you have to, ultimately you have to trust a formula to do it. And the only way you can really decide whether a formula is doing a good job of it is to look at the results it spits out. So it's, it ends up being a little circular, but again, going back to what I said, if you have a, if you have a formula that spits out a, a list that's looks 90% good, then it's probably doing a pretty good job. And you can think harder about those last 10% to get a sense of either where you can improve it or maybe where your gut was leading you astray in the first place. Sure. I think you've answered a lot of these questions that provide a lot of clarity. You're a numbers guy, and you know this is definitely the way for the future, and we all rely on numbers. Uh, another popular question is that uh, how do you measure, not even ELO, how do you measure, say, Bjorn Borg's greatness, say, compared to Rafa Nadal or Novak Djokovic? And for good argument, Borg probably wasn't playing the same sport as Sampras because of the equipment and you know changes you know, in overall tennis, and now you try to compare him with modern day greats like Djokovic and Nadal. Uh, how, how does that factor into ELO as a larger question? And also, do you believe in those comparisons across generations? Well, I think I kind of have to punt on that one because that's the only way to handle it. I mean, as I think you're suggesting, you can't really make those comparisons. I mean, if, if I say that, you know, Ellsworth Vines is better than Agassi, I'm, I'm not really saying that if we if if we put Ellsworth Vines out there with his equipment, he'd be better than Agassi with his. Or if we gave them both Agassi's rackets, Vines would be better. If we gave them both wooden rackets, Vines would be better. I'm not saying any of those things because <laughs> who the heck knows? I mean, I, I, I don't know how to answer that question. Um, so what you end up doing is just saying how how well did a player compete against their era combined with some adjustment for how strong the era is. And you could come back and say, okay, how can you compare the eras if you've just said you can't compare the eras, which is a fair point. And it's, it's easier to look at it if you think in smaller increments. So 
you can't compare, you know, 1980 Bjorn Borg to 2012 Novak Djokovic, but you can compare 80 Borg to 81 Borg, 81 Borg to 82 McEnroe, 82 McEnroe to 83 McEnroe, 83 McEnroe to on and on and on. If you take all those incremental steps, including times when a lot of players are changing the types of um, equipment they're playing with, when maybe the balls are evolving, the surface mix is changing. If you, if you look at look at it on a 30-year scale, the game is barely recognizable. But for any one of those incremental one-year steps, the game is very, very close to being the same thing. So hopefully by applying a consistent formula to all those incremental steps, you get a sense that you know maybe Borg was 5% better in 1980 than he was in 1981. 81 Borg was 2% better than 82 McEnroe. 83 McEnroe was 10% better than... You, know, you get the idea... All those incremental steps add up to saying maybe 1980 Borg was 2% worse than 2016 Novak Djokovic or something something like that. And it's it's a tenuous link because you are combining so many incremental steps, but that's kind of what you have to do if you want to do anything other than just punt and say, I don't know. And as long as as long as you're you're humble about what you're trying to achieve, I think you can get to an answer. It's just, you're just answering something very abstract compared to what if we put these two guys on a court and waited to see what the final score was. Sure. All right, so we, we're going to make some closing remarks here and then I'll, I think we'll be coming on time. So one last uh, basic question is if a fan is, is wondering after listening to this conversation, is there a chart somewhere on the site, say, which gives all-time peak ELO, say if Sampras' peak ELO was, uh, I'm looking at his chart, is for example, 2268, where does he rank among all-time greats? Is there a selection or is there a way to filter the site compared Sampras peak ELO rating to, say, Federer or Djokovic's? There isn't now. Um, and actually, I think the, the what I have on the individual player pages is year-end rankings, and usually a player's absolute peak is not going to be right at the year-end. It'll be you know after they won their after they won a slam or they won their greatest match of that season. Um, I know it's something a lot of people are interested in. It's it's not there. And one of the reasons why is that as I add more data, the the ratings, especially for players further back in history, they they change a little bit. And and that's extremely unsatisfying to a lot of people. The idea that the ratings aren't set in stone for someone who retired 30 years ago or might even be dead. Um, but especially with the men's data, which I, I don't have as full a data set for, uh, if I were to say take my open era data set and add a complete record of what happened in 1967, then obviously you'd end up with a new number for Rod Laver or a new number for Ken Rosewall. And that would affect Borg and McEnroe and on and on and on. So I keep hoping that I'll get to some more stable numbers before I publish um, historical numbers. I just don't like the fact that as soon as I put it out there, people will, some people anyway, will take them as more, as more concrete or final than they really are. Um, I probably should just put something out there for to fulfill everyone's curiosity and <laughs> add all the caveats I feel like I need to add. Uh, but that's sadly no, that's why. Yeah, we can, as, as, as user of the site, we can all go to the 10, 15 pages that we're interested in, look at the peak ELO moment or the year-end ELO rankings, and that kind of will tell you the formula stays consistent. Everybody starts at 1,500. So where does Sampras rank? Where does Edberg rank? And, and so on. 
So there's, there's also a match, match charts, right, Paige? And you said, you know, certain matches from older generations are there. So if someone wants to contribute, uh, what's the process? I mean, uh, how, if someone wants an old match featured here, uh, how do you go about it? Where do you even begin? Well, if you start on my homepage, there's a little section on the tennisabstract.com homepage called the Match Charting Project. It's right at the top of the page. Um, click on, let's see, which link will take you to uh, some tips. The very first link, the link for Charting Pro Matches, um, will give you, it, it's to my quick start guide. And the basic idea is there's a spreadsheet where you enter codes for every serve, every shot, the direction of every shot, all that stuff. Um, if if there's a specific match that you'd like to chart, um, you need to have video of it. I mean, assuming we haven't already charted it and we've charted every Grand Slam final back to the late 70s and every big four head-to-head and a lot of other important matches. But assuming there's a match that we haven't already covered, if you have video of the complete match or close to the complete match, um, you want to download the spreadsheet, um, read through the instructions, which unfortunately are a little bit complicated. It's a, it's a bit of a learning process. It's not something you can just click a few buttons and immediately be, uh, be conversant in, but hopefully the learning curve isn't too tough. Believe it or not, I have tried to make it as simple as possible. Um, so I mean, strap in for a little bit of bumpiness, but, um, learn the shot codes. So the direction, the, the numbers for directions of serves, the, the letters for each individual type of shot. And it's, it's, I hope pretty straightforward. I mean, you'll end up doing a lot of rewinding and rewatching the, the first few or a few dozen points of the match you're charting, but you can just start typing away. And when you're done charting the match, you can send me the spreadsheet and then I upload it to the site and run it through some code and then it's there forever. So it will, if you send it to me today, it will be the 10,717th charted match. So we've got a pretty good collection yep. already there but lots more to come absolutely and that makes me look poor i thought i did a decent homework on you know the questions to ask i didn't even uh, look at this page so you know that's a that's a red card for me if brad gilbert was listening so all right so again uh, we talked about you being in norway and that's going to be the closing act of this uh, conversation casper Ruud's really come of age you know i didn't expect him to be in the u.s open finals or become the hardcore player he's become I knew he had clay court talent, and I also believed if the draw opened up, few people, you know, were taken care of by a few others, he could be a French Open finalist. But I didn't think all this going to happen in 2022. I was a believer, but this is way too fast. So, how's Casper Ruud's progress being uh, received uh, in Norway? How people are super excited. Tennis is on the news for the first time ever. Um, I. I remember being really amused when Casper was first starting to break in all of a sudden there would be a, a challenger final on Eurosport uh, or even picked up by the Norwegian national broadcaster. You know, I'll be sitting on the train and there'll be a, a news flash on the, the overhead screens that tells me that Casper lost in the second round of Vienna or what, I don't know what he did this week, but all of his results are, are published Tennis is just showing tiny signs of, of picking up here. There's not a huge amount of infrastructure. So there's, there's a couple, I think there's, there's one ITF future tournament every year. Now, a few years ago, there was a, there was a circuit of, I think four ITF men's tournaments and one women's. And then they were talking about a, a challenger in Bergen a couple of years ago, but that got wiped out by COVID. Uh, 
So I think Casper's Casper's um, pulling Norwegian tennis up by the bootstraps a little bit. Uh, it helps. There's a little money here to support it. Um, it's a it's a big deal when when Davis Cup happens here. I mean, not not a big deal by like South American standards, but a big deal by Scandinavian sports standards. Uh, and yeah, I don't think. I'm not even sure people fully understand what what a big deal it is because I mean Norwegians are used to having gold medal winners in pretty much every winter sport there is, and to have someone come out of nowhere and reach a U.S. Open final, I'm not sure people understand how substantial an accomplishment that is, especially for someone who comes from a place without much of or really any any tennis infrastructure like Norway does. Now, as a fan of the sport, uh, do you think we've seen his ceiling? Or, I mean, I, you know, where do you think, how far can he go? I don't, uh, this is something, you know, you're a numbers guy, but take the numbers hat for a second and just, uh, what do you see? Uh, what, yeah, the, based on what you've seen. <laughs> the, the, well, for one thing, I mean, the, probably the weakest thing that, for, well, the, the one thing that numbers are worst at is predicting the future. Um, it's <laughs> hard, hard for all of us, regardless of our toolbox. Uh, but no, I think, I, I think he has higher to go. So much of his game is, is tactical. Like he's, he, I mean, it is, feels like pretty much everyone coming up these days is, is a serve plus one guy or turning into a serve plus one guy. And he's, he, he did a great job a few years ago developing from primarily a clay quarter into someone who uh, would hit bigger serves, hit bigger second shots and compete better on hard courts. But I think there's more improvement to be made there. And I think there's probably some improvement to be made back on, on clay as well. I mean, he's, since he, he doesn't have the biggest game of his generation, like he, I, I think this might be one of these narrative things that I could disprove if I really put my mind to it, but it feels like the more, the more tactical a player, the, the less impressive the weapons, the later they peak. So if that's true, then I mean, his peak might still be two, three, four years away. And you know, if, if he's already at the point where he's reaching Grand Slam finals, then who knows where that could lead. So much of it depends on on how the era pans out. I mean, if it, we're talking about like the the late 90s, early 2000s being a relatively weak era, I mean, depending on what Carlos Alcaraz does, I mean, we might be looking at the same thing now. I mean, if if, if Alcaraz takes a step back, then maybe we don't have a super strong era for five years here. And maybe Casper picks up a few slams, even without taking a big step forward. I don't think that's what's going to happen. I think he will have to get better and Alcaraz would be great as well. But uh, that's so much depends on that. I mean, that's to to circle back and give myself one last, one last plug. Uh, That's one of the big lessons to me of, of doing all the research in the tennis 128 is there are some players who, are a lot better than I ever thought they were um, because I always knew of them as a, a slamless player who maybe only reached number two or number three in the rankings. Looking back at the era, looking back at what they did achieve, I'm learning just how great they were. And it doesn't reflect a whole lot on them in some cases. I mean, the only way they could have become a three slam champion or a 40 week number one player was if they'd just been born at a different time and you can't control that. So I mean, so much of someone like Casper or maybe some of the other guys who are hanging around in the top 10 right now, it will depend on how the era itself plays out. And who knows how to predict that? No, I think that's, uh, that's pretty accurate. Prediction is 
uh, a fun exercise, but you know, it's really uh, more like guesswork based on your numbers that have been created, but there is no other way to do it. So the floor is yours, uh, you know, parting thoughts on tennis abstract on the 128, anything that's brewing in your side of the world. If you want to let the listeners here know, uh, please fire away. Well, I think I'll, I think you've done a pretty good job of covering everything. I was not going to give you any kind of red card for missing the match charting project. I hope everyone does read the 128 and not get too worked up about the rankings themselves. I know it's, it's really exciting to work through the last few dozen players. Um, I mean, obviously if you, if you put a little time into it, you know who the rest of the players are, but the, the ranking is something that people disagree pretty widely on. A number of people have sent me their their own lists over the course <laughs> of this project. And it, I mean, it's fascinating. I, 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 I welcome that. And the range of, of, of disagreement is enormous. I mean, I, I made a joke to, to Carl. Carl Bialik and I did a podcast about the project when it first started back in February. And I think that was when I, I, I first realized that like we're getting into the right now I'm at number 28, number 27 is probably coming tomorrow. Uh, we're pretty much in the part of the ranking where everyone, every single player is in the goat conversation. There might be, there are a few players left who no one would really ever consider a goat. But if you start listing all the players who have a claim to be the greatest of all time, it's pretty easy to get to 20, maybe 25. And then you think, Holy crap. One of those players has to be number 25. I mean, that's, the, it's a really bizarre thing to think that, you know, I mean, obviously it's not going to be Novak Djokovic or else, you know, everyone on Twitter would come set my house on fire or something, but somebody who a lot of people firmly believe is the greatest player of all time is going to be outside the top 20 of these rankings. And I mean, that it, it still blows my mind, but even more interesting than that, I mean, all, all these players have had really remarkable, interesting careers. And I think a lot of the the most interesting details tend to get lost in in the GOAT debates and, and the, the narratives of this Grand Slam final or another Grand Slam final. And that's what I'm hoping to dig up is all those, all the, the, those additional stories to give a little color behind, you know, whether Don Budge was number one or Rod Laver was number one or Suzanne Longland was number one. I mean, there's, there's a lot more to these people than whether they were the best player of their era or the best player of all time. And that's what I'm really interested in. No, believe me, the countdown is heating up now, you know, since the Beckers, Agassi, Murray's, Sabatini's now I think everybody's more keen because we are, we are approaching that day and you know of course uh, your inbox will be flooded by the big three fan bases probably arguably the hugest fan bases out there and same for the Serena fan base you know like where these people end up with it's going to be interesting and uh, I along with everyone is looking forward Jeff thank you this was brilliant as always I hope I did a good job by dumbing down my questions even though I'm not you know a numbers guy but I just wanted to pick your brain so you know, it could be elemental explanation for a lot of people like me. And I'm sure more without my recommendation, hundreds of thousands of people are using Tennis Abstract because we all go there for some match or the some stats. So I think that's only continuing. That's the direction to go. Thank you very much. It was enjoyable. Maybe we can do this again at some point. Yeah, my pleasure.